Matthew chapter 16. We're still taking a break from the Missio Christi series. We've got some family business to deal with this morning. So if this church is your family, then this is going to be very cool for you. If not, if you're visiting, then it might be kind of lame for you. And we're sorry about that. Come back another time. Uh, But some family business to take care of. Matthew chapter 16. We'll look at it in a moment. Let's pray. Lord, as we speak about these things that you're doing in our midst, we would ask that you would impress upon our hearts a sense of gratitude, that we be overwhelmed to be people who are included in your mission, that we would be excited about what you're up to, Lord, and that you would continue to do more than we ever thought possible as a church. And so, Holy Spirit, please anoint me to speak of the things that uh, the Lord is up to and bless this time. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So family business, this is a morning where we are going to officially and finally send Dave and Ashley Lomas to San Francisco to plant that church. Yeah, go ahead. So they're going to come up in just a moment and we'll lay hands on them, but I just want to talk about church planting and uh, your generosity for just a moment. Before we get to the church planning part, I just want to say that you guys as a church, Carpinteria Campus, Ventura Campus, you guys are incredibly generous. This December has really exemplified that. When we put out the plea the last few weeks to help the homeless in our community, Santa Barbara, Ventura, and the surrounding areas, you guys responded overwhelmingly. We have given out hundreds and hundreds of blankets, sleeping bags, tarps, beanies, jackets, articles of clothing, hoodies, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds to all of the people that we could get in contact with. And now we have a giant storehouse of a whole bunch more that's just waiting to go out as the Lord leads. And you guys gave tons of money for that effort. We were able to buy everything that we needed to provide for the less fortunate during this cold weather. And now we have a surplus of cash just in reserve and we're asking the Holy Spirit how can we use this to be on mission with the homeless and the poor in our community so you guys have been incredibly generous this December good job beyond that the Maasai beadwork that we had for sale at both campuses you guys bought $10,000 worth of beads (laughs) who does that Who spends 10 grand on beads? That's incredible. And it's because you realized that they were more than beads, that these were made by women in Africa who are wanting to support their families and develop communities who are being discipled in Christ, who are starting new lives. And so you guys contributed to that. And you need to know that your 10 grand goes directly to them and that it's going to impact women, families, children, and whole communities by your generosity. Communities in Africa are literally going to be radically impacted. So good job giving there. And then you guys gave a bunch of money for our work in Thailand this month. We've been looking at two different plots of land for some time that we want to buy over there. You guys gave a bunch of money this month, just unprompted by us. You just did it and you earmarked it Thailand. So now we're going to be able to buy these two plots of land and here's what we're doing. On one of them, we're going to build another orphanage, a brand new facility to house more orphans and to raise them in the Lord and to care for them. And on the second piece of land, we're going to build a home for young ladies that we are buying out of prostitution. 
and will raise them up in the Lord in those homes and see them restored. So the work that you guys are doing in Thailand is beautiful and your generosity is making that possible. And then on top of that, this month, you guys have given a ton of money to the work of the Lord. It's stupid. We're like the only organization in the world that is way up, you know, in our revenue over last year. We're up like 40% over last year. So you guys are nuts and uh, you should applaud the Lord in you. Uh, generosity is a wonderful representation of the love of God. God so loved the world that he gave. And you guys are giving as a church. So good job. One of the ways that you're giving is in church planting. God has called us to be a church that plants or births other churches. This isn't anything that we ever hoped to do in and of ourselves or dreamed up by ourselves, but God has called us to be a church that reproduces, that multiplies. We're excited about this because Jesus is into this, right? Here in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus says, uh, for time's sake, we'll just pick it up in verse 18. He says, and I also say to you, Peter, that you are the rock and upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not overpower it. 2000 years ago, Jesus said that he would build something he called the church, the ecclesia. It means an assembly or a gathering, but he called it my church, the possessive pronoun, the ecclesia of me, literally he was saying, my gathering, my assembly of my people assembled unto, for, and around me. And that God would be about the business of building the church. And so now, as a church, we want to join with Christ in that. We want to be on Missio Christi, the mission of Christ, as he's building the church, partnering with him. And as we plant churches and birth churches, as you guys do that, you're on mission with God because that's what God is doing, right? Jesus said, I will build my church. I'm going to build this thing. And hell won't be able to handle it. Right, And then he poured out the Holy Spirit on the church, thereby officially birthing it in Acts chapter 2. And then what did the church do? They went out and started other churches, right? They gathered for a while in Jerusalem, and then they scattered across the world. And wherever they went, they planted churches. All over the place, we see the apostles planting churches. The Lord is doing the same thing in our day and age. He's raising up men and women to plant churches and he's called our church specifically to be a part of that. So it appears from scripture that the church is God's strategy to reach a broken, hopeless, dark world. It's not the only thing that God is up to, but it's a thing. The church is not the kingdom, but it's an expression of the kingdom. It's part of it. It's a vehicle and an instrument of the kingdom, right? And so God is planting churches around the world and he's called us to that and we are 100% committed to that task. And we believe by doing so that we're being obedient and that by doing so we're staying on mission and that by doing so we're staying outward focused, which keeps us from falling into um, 
maintenance mode. Have you ever seen a church that's kind of just falling into maintenance mode? They just come on and kind of want to keep going what they've got going on the home front. And it becomes about just getting people at church all the time. And we just want the same people to come more often to church. And it's just kind of a maintenance thing. We don't want to be in maintenance mode. We want to be in sending mode. We don't want to be about getting people here all the time. We want to be about getting people out there more of the time and getting them on mission. So we believe that by planting churches, we're being obedient, that we are being outward focused, that we're staying on mission, and it keeps us from just being in maintenance mode. As I said, planting churches is something that God has called us to do. Here's how it went down, a little history lesson. This church, which was the first reality, started in 2003, September 2003. Shortly after, people began to call us and say, hey, we've kind of been, you know, watching this new church reality that you guys have, and we want to be connected to you. We want to be identified with you. We also want to start a reality. And we were kind of taken aback by that because, I mean, it was just weird. We just never thought that that would ever happen, and why would you want to be, and don't you know how weird we are, messed up we are, and what are you even talking about? But it was happening enough that it caused us to pray and to fast, and to seek the Lord. And we begin to seek the Lord and say, Lord, what does that mean that other churches also want to be realities? What, what do we do with that? And I was hoping he would say, oh, nothing, they're weird, don't worry about it. But the Lord kind of spoke to us prophetically and said um, that he did want us to plant other churches, but for a church to be a reality, they would have to come out of a reality. It would have to be a relational birthing thing. So then he gave us his models. We began to, or excuse me, as we continued to pray that what would happen is that people would leave their lives wherever they were, men and women who felt called to plant churches, uproot themselves, sell their homes, quit their jobs, come here and be here for two or three years. And then we would send them out. What would happen in their two or three years here is they would catch the DNA and that we would develop deep relationships and that they would become part of us and we would become part of them so that when they went out, it really was a birthing sort of thing. So when we heard about that, that us planting churches would require people to move here for two or three years, honestly, in in the back of my mind, I thought, oh, cool, this is our ticket out of this gig because no one's going to do that. And then these freaky people started doing it. They felt called by God and they were willing to uproot their lives and move here. First, it was Tim and Lindsay Chaddock, who now have planted Reality Los Angeles, which is one of the fastest growing churches in the state of California and is just rocking for Jesus. And then it was Josh and Andrea Kaler, who have planted Reality Stockton, and they just opened up a second campus, and they're doing wonderful. And then Dave and Ashley Lomas are going to be going to San Francisco, and we've got another church planting couple that's here that I can't tell you about yet, and some more that are lined up. So people were doing this. Now, the first part of that process that we felt the Lord tell us is that they would have to come and go through a period that we would call ministry detox. These were all men and women who were involved in ministry. They were working at churches and they were leading ministries and going on mission trips and pastoring and shepherding and had been doing it for some time. We would require of them that they move here, get a normal job outside of the church and just come and sit. They wouldn't be allowed to serve in any way. Um, They just have to come and sit and receive for about a year. And across the board, we heard from people that this was incredibly difficult for them. 
because they had been in full-time ministry. And weird things happen in full-time ministry. One of the things that happens is your identity becomes about your ministry. And that's wrong. Our identity is in Jesus, not in what we do for him. But full-time ministerial work has these dangers where it becomes your identity and you kind of see your self-worth and what you do for the Lord and in the church and how you preach and shepherd and lead. And that's a danger that I personally am always fighting against. And then beyond that, ministry easily becomes an idol. When it was once about Jesus and just being passionate for him and obedient to him, it becomes about doing things for him. And ministry very quickly becomes an idol and Jesus is sort of pushed to the side and we lose that intimacy. We sacrifice it for ministry and that's wrong. You see, ministry is supposed to flow from intimacy. So we put all the guys through ministry detox, come and sit in the pews for a year. And across the board, we heard it was very hard because of those identity and idolatry issues. And across the board, we heard at the end of the process, every one of them say, hey, here's what that did for me. I love Jesus my wife, and the church more than I ever did before. That's really good. That's really good. Those are the kind of people that we want to send out on the field. People who are on fire for the Lord, in love with their spouse, and adore the bride of Christ. And that ministry detox seems to be accomplishing that. Then after that, we would bring them on staff for about a year or so, bring them on staff. And during that time, we would be investing in them, right? Equipping them to start a church, teaching them what we know. And then they would be investing in us. So everyone that comes to do that, you see them teaching and preaching from my pulpit. You see them leading home groups, leading small groups, leading mission trips, leading prayer tours, serving around the church, cleaning, counseling, praying, doing the work of the ministry, investing in the body here. So that when we send them out now, there's this radical relational investment. We've invested everything we can in them. They've invested everything they have in us. So there's these really cool heart ties. So when they go out, it's our very own going and we feel connected and mutually invested. During that time, we start our prayer meetings. And before one of our church plants ever has a single service, it has at least one year of prayer meetings behind it. And you've seen that happen for several of our church plants. And then once they go, and during the process, we really call it kind of birthing. Church planting is not as good of an analogy as birthing, because birthing is more relational, and that's what our model is that God gave us. It's very relational. Birthing is committed. You're like committed to that thing. Like it's going to happen, you know what I mean? Uh, Birthing is more labor intensive than planting and it's very labor intensive. Birthing is a more lengthy process than planting, right? This is like a two to three year term. Who wants to carry a baby for that long? And uh, also birthing is more messy than planting. With planting, you kind of stick it in the ground and you, you make the little thing around it and you give it water and a certain amount of light and you kind of know what's going to happen. But with birth, it's like gnarly. You know what I mean? And that's how church planning is. It's not quite as predictable. And so we call it birthing. And also birthing is costly. And planting churches and campuses as we're doing with our Ventura campuses here is a costly thing. In fact, in 2009, um, with our church planting and birthing efforts and with the Ventura campus being launched, you guys spent $1.4 million dollars in those efforts this year. Ventura, you guys took most of that. Your campus was most of that. We love you guys. Are they worth it? Is Ventura worth it? 
But this process of birthing campuses and churches is an extremely costly thing. But when the children are birthed, it's a family thing. And they're our very own, and we are committed to them for life like a family. We fight with them. We rejoice with them. Not fight with them like against them, but side by side. We fight alongside with them. We rejoice with them. We weep with them when they need to weep. We'll die with them if need be. It's a family thing. We're always there for them relationally, and we're always there for these church plants financially. Because we view them as children, we support them until they're able to stand on their own. So we support them 100%. Every church that we've started, we pay for the staffing, the building, the equipment, the insurances, uh, benefits, salaries, all that stuff is paid for 100% by you guys, the mother church, until they can stand on their own like you would do with your kids, and then you cut them loose. Sometimes, like there is with your kids, they need a little nudge, right? Like, dude, you're 25, move out now. And we've had to give a couple of them some little, you know, loving nudges out the door, but we've seen them become self-sufficient. So that's kind of the model that the Lord has given us. It's costly, it's relational, it's labor-intensive, and thus far it's been incredibly fruitful for the glory of God. It's slow growth, but it seems to be good growth. Now, the way that we choose our church planters is simply by hearing the voice of the Lord. For example, Dave, who you'll hear from in just a minute. Uh, I didn't know Dave previously. He was working at a church in Bakersfield, and every once in a while, he and his wife would just show up here in the congregation, and I would see him. I just kind of noticed them, and then I'd go speak at conferences, and they'd be there, and I would notice them, and I could just remember one Sunday that they were sitting right there where you two guys are, and I noticed them when I was playing guitar, and I noticed them when I was preaching, and the Spirit was just doing something. We connected afterwards, and we began to speak, and, and the Lord just began to do this thing where we felt like, hey, you guys should plant a church, and we should do it together and blah, blah, blah. And uh, the Spirit just began to lead us. And as a staff, we began to fast and to pray and seek the Lord to hear whether or not Dave and Ashley were the couple that we were to partner with at this time. When Dave finally came, I had never heard him preach ever. I didn't ask to hear him preach. We had never gone through a doctrinal theological statement to see if we agreed upon those things. I had never asked for a resume. I never checked references. We had simply heard the Holy Spirit say, this couple now, and we obeyed that. What's so cool then is we can be committed 100% radically relationally for life because it's the Lord. It wasn't a resume. It wasn't merely a doctrinal agreement. It was Jesus Christ saying, you are to be yoked together. And so we're radically committed. And our goal is to equip and release. Equip and release. Like fishermen who are eco-sensitive, they catch and release. We like to equip and release. The goal is to get more people equipped and out on the field. And so... When we send someone out, we lay hands on them and we pray for them. The reason we do that is because that's what they did in the Bible. In Acts chapter 13, the church was there ministering to the Lord, it says, and the Spirit said to the church, separate unto me Paul and Barnabas for the work I have for the... Again, it was the Holy Spirit saying these two now. And they laid their hands on them and prayed for them. And in Acts 13, 4, it says, and the Holy Spirit sent them out. It was a doing of the Spirit, but the Spirit works through the church. 
And so we lay hands on them. So in a moment, we'll bring them up and we'll lay hands on them and pray for them. And then we'll hear from Dave. Ventura Campus, we realize that um, it's hard for you to lay hands on them. So why don't you just hold hands with each other as a show of solidarity and family as we pray. And now both campuses, let's welcome Dave and Ashley Lomas. They're pretty cute, at least she is. <laughs> and uh, they're really committed. They've really counted the cost. They put their life on the altar. They're starting a Bible teaching church in San Francisco. I mean, that's nutty. Not only that, but, you know, we prayed that the Lord give us a building, and He gave us a building. We have a map where it is. Smack dab in the geographical center of the city, which is just kind of cool symbolically. And it happens to be on the main street, Market Street of San Francisco, in the main homosexual district, the Castro District. And so they're taking the spirit of God, the kingdom of God, and the word of God, and the love, and the beauty, the grace, and the compassion of Jesus to the people that need them most. They're dead meat. (laughs) It's going to be awesome what the Lord is going to do, and the persecution that they're going to experience. So we want to send them out. In the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's come lay hands on him, church. Lord, first, we just want to say that we're really thankful to be included in your work. It's really cool that Jesus, 2,000 years ago, you said you would build your church and now we see you doing it in us and through us and us with you and we're humbled by that. We say thank you, Lord, for causing us to multiply and be fruitful by your grace and for your glory. We're honored. Thank you, Jesus. We thank you for this precious couple who have, by your enabling, counted the cost and not considered their lives dear. but They've put them on the altar for the sake of the gospel and the kingdom of God and the glory of Jesus. And we ask now, Lord, that you would radically empower them. We ask that as we lay hands on the Holy Spirit, you would come upon them, that they would receive everything that they need to be your ambassadors, your representatives, your ministers, stewards of your grace. We ask that the gospel would fall quickly from their lips, but it would also work radically through their hands, Lord. We ask that you would use them in the most incredible way that Jesus, they would love with your heart and they would see with your eyes. We hold a shield of faith over them believing that it will extinguish the fiery darts of the enemy. We ask that you preserve them from the schemes of the enemy. We ask that you preserve their marriage and holiness. We know that that's a sexually weird city. And so we're asking for sexual wholeness in their marriage. That you bless their intimacy and their communication and their oneness. And what God has put together, no city and no ministry could tear asunder. And no demon could tear asunder, Lord. We ask that you keep them as one. And we ask for the church there that it would bear fruit to your glory. Jesus, we say together that you're the senior pastor of that church. 
You have a chief shepherd and we ask that you would lead them, that Dave and Ashley and those going with them would hear your voice, Lord, that you tune their ears and that you steady their feet to walk the course and that the gospel and the love of Christ would go forth powerfully in that city. We ask for many converts, Lord, and we ask for much healing and restoration and newness, Lord. We ask for freedom to come to those who are in bondage, Lord, that you would do incredible things and that you would do it for your glory. We're in awe of the fact that you use broken, messed up people to do such beautiful, amazing things, and yet we're thankful for it. And we ask now that you would send Dave and Ashley out in the power, the anointing, and the love of the Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, now Dave is going to come up and share for just a couple minutes what this whole process has looked like from his perspective and Ashley's perspective and uh, what it kind of means for us as a church and what it means for the church in San Francisco. So now I turn it over to Pastor Dave Lomas. I love seeing your guys' faces when we stood up there. It was like we've been away from our home in Bakersfield where we grew up for about almost three years now. And so every time we come back, my mom and dad's face when we walk in is like your guys' faces when we stood up there. And it was like you guys know that we are starting this church like together. And you guys feel as committed as, as we do, except you're not leaving. You should though, but no. Um, <laughs> And even like those that are in Ventura, I could imagine you're like, there's so many people that, have, are, that are there right now that have been so supportive, just like you guys have been, in praying for us and being at prayer meetings and uh, our, like, Monday, we started these like Monday night meetings where we just kind of talked about what ministry looks like in San Francisco and you guys have been there and committed. So what, what the beauty of this whole process is, is that the whole church feels like they're planning another church. And that's why we call it birthing, because you guys really feel like, in some weird way that we're, we're, we're your kids and we're going off to start a church and the church that is birthed is part of you guys and that's what's so wonderful when we first got here. Every time they would mention LA or Stockton, you guys would just like erupt in applause and get so excited and I was like, wow, they really, like, they really feel connected to them and that's what we've loved. I might be biased, but I think this is the best and most beautiful form of starting a church. I mean, this is, is so cool what Christ is doing and ha- has us doing, starting churches. And I think it's the most beautiful method, the most beautiful way. When we first moved here, when we left Bakersfield to come here, from a planter's perspective, or the church planter or church birther, which is, sounds really weird, but from that perspective, I feel like I've been adopted into a, a family. When we came and the staff, before we got to know a lot of you guys, we were just introduced to the staff first. And it feels like as soon as we came in, they like welcomed us in as friends. Like I just got like 10 brand new brothers and they treated me like brothers in, in, in weird ways. One time they broke into my house and I was in the shower. So they broke into the shower and they all packed into my shower and it was, they just, I don't know, it was weird. 
It's still weird thinking back. I mean, I'm still therapy, you know, it's just it's working that stuff out. But and I, and, I, and I remember thinking, I mean, who does this? Who? And they loved it, too. It was fun for them, and they were just yelling and screaming. And they go out, and I'm, I'm like, I just got, I, I don't have, I have two sisters. So I go, this is, I told my wife, I think I just got like 10 brothers now. And that's what it was like ever since we came here. I mean, we made, we had a lot of lifelong, wonderful friends that we left back home when we came here. And it feels at times, and, and Britt was sharing this, what, you, what they ask for the church planter to give up is, is quite absurd. I mean, they're like, okay, sell your house and quit your job and move here to Carpinteria and you're from Bakersfield and rent's like three times higher here and then find a job and then live here for a year but don't do anything you did before and we'll, and, and we'll be committed to you relationally but, you know, it's called a detox. And there was times when I was seriously angry about this. I'd be at home like, why would they do this to me? Why would they make me do this? But then what I, what I found was that sacrifice of leaving all of that and then coming here was met by their sacrifice of bringing us in, like immediately bringing us in. And then with you guys as well, with, with the whole church, the Ventura campus and this campus, just bringing us in and loving us. And, and it was like immediate family. Um, there was times when I was lonely, though. I'm not going to lie about that. I mean, one time in particular, I was so lonely that I didn't answer my phone. I kind of went through this whole thing where I felt like in this kind of funk. And I remember Britt and G and staff would text and call and call, and I wouldn't answer my phone. And finally, I got this voicemail that said, if you don't answer your phone, the whole staff is coming over and beating you up. <laughs> and so that, that's the kind of love. It was just, it, it, was that, it was that kind of love, like brotherly love. I mean, you do that, right? You should. The church, you guys, both from Carpenter Ventura, have brought Ash and I in as family. But the trippy thing, and this is one of the things that blows my mind, is that you allowed me to shepherd here as well. It takes sacrifice to allow someone like Yahoo just to come in and shepherd from somewhere else, to shepherd you and to, and to teach you and to like lead a home group with you and do all these things and then leave in a couple years. Like you guys know that we're leaving and then you still allow us and you still learn and you still will set up counseling appointments and all these things knowing that we'll get real connected to you but you're leaving. That takes a huge amount of sacrifice. It took sacrifice of your time. The, the many prayer meetings that you were a part of and praying for San Francisco. It takes a lot of money, as Britt shared. It costs tons of money to start a new church. And then to allow the church planner to take loved ones. I mean, that was from the very beginning, it was expressed to me, whoever is called to go from this church, take them. That's okay. We consider them a, a, a sweet offering. If they're, I mean, except for probably two people, Everyone else is, is free game. You can take whoever God calls. Now, San Francisco has, um, rather San Francisco has taken about 15 people who are actively involved here. These people have heard the call of God, resigned from their jobs, relocated, got new jobs in the city, got apartments, got peacoats, I mean everything, <laughs> and completely moved to San Francisco. And they were actively involved here, and they took a hit. There was... There was there's a couple people, there's several people that left here that, that it was a big hit here. Now, what all of this has accomplished so far, the prayer, you guys praying, you guys investing, you guys really caring, it feels like everyone's starting. What it's done here, I'm not trying to sound presumptuous or arrogant, but I believe San Francisco will never be the same again, ever. And I don't think, I don't think this church... Ventura Campus, I don't think you guys will be the same either. 
There's something that happens when a church will commit to praying and sacrificially serving and giving themselves over to something like this, that God changes things. God does this. We started a prayer meeting in San Francisco when my wife and I moved there in September. We started it and immediately, and this isn't what, this wasn't with everyone having moved there yet. Immediately, right out of the gate, about 30 people were showing up to prayer meetings on Sunday nights in San Francisco. And a lot of them, we didn't even know. And we didn't know where they came from. It was interesting to hear their story on how they heard about the church or how, how they got to the prayer meeting and all these different things. I mean, that's, to me, I was, I was absolutely blown away. There was a couple times where we didn't fit in the house because we moved different ha- to different houses to be in different districts in the city to pray. There was a couple times where the house that we were in, because things are smaller in San Francisco, where we couldn't fit in a, in a single room and we're overflowing into the kitchen. One time we're in our, in our house and we're overflowing into my bedroom and it was just, it was awesome to see so many people coming out to pray. And, and if you remember the prayer meetings that we've prayed for, we've prayed for the prayer meetings. Let's pray that the prayer meetings are effective. And through all of this, we've also, a- also asked for a building to be strategic. You could put that back up on the screen where we're at. We're right in the heart of the city. We believe that, that God strategically has chosen um, the next reality to be in San Francisco. And because of that, we know that not only that, but he will choose the exact district and the location where we'll be. And he put us, and we looked everywhere. He put us right in the heart of the city, right in the Castro in this beautiful building built in um, 1907, the Swedish American Hall. I mean, it's a gorgeous building. We're right on Market Street, the main street. I mean, there's a lot of main streets in, in San Francisco, but the main, main street in San Francisco. God put us there. And the other thing that we prayed about was not just location, was favor with our landlord and our neighbors. And once we got into this building, our, our landlord is so excited about us being there. And we thought, I mean, with everyone we were asking, it was like pulling teeth to even ask about a church being there. But this one right away, when I went up and met him, I said, we're a church, we're a young church, we're a young faith community, and we need a place to meet on Sunday mornings. And he's like, there's a church that met here 10 years ago. That would be awesome if we had another one again. And in our prayer meetings, we have thanked the the Lord, and you can thank the Lord with us for that church. I don't know their name. I'm still trying to figure it out. That church that was there 10 years ago that left a wonderful witness in that place to allow us to come in 10 years later. He says some people still come to the, uh, the hall and go, is the church still meeting here? I mean, it was 10 years ago. And we want to be that effective in that city. We want to be that effective in that district. And so, given us what, he's so excited, we're excited. He's excited that we're excited. That's how excited he is. Last time we met with them and we were leaving, he goes, I'm so excited, I'm excited that you're excited. I love people that are excited about their own thing. I'm like, yeah, we're pretty excited about this. And it was just, it's it's amazing. I did get a call from him about uh, the day before we signed the contract. He called me and he said, now what, I need to ask you this. What is your stance on homosexuality? Because you're right, we're right in the middle of the Castro and you know that. What is your stance? And we wrestle through that. We know where we stand, but how to communicate that in a loving way. There is a lot of pride there, especially in that district. There's a lot of pride. You guys know this. And so we believe the answer is humility. We believe we go in there with humility. And so when you ask this, we've been asked this before. We've actually had people come to our prayer meetings who are in that lifestyle who've asked the same question. And so what I told him, I said, we, we believe that everyone in San Francisco, actually everyone, is screwed up sexually. 
Everyone. Married couples, single couples, homosexuals, everyone's messed up, and everybody needs Jesus. Everybody needs to look to Jesus to redeem their sexuality. Everyone needs to look to the Bible to see the real way to live. And we preach Jesus and his grace, and we will turn away no one. And he said, okay, that's the right answer. Let's proceed. Let's move forward in signing this contract. And so we believe that we're there. I mean, there's times that I wake up in the middle of the night panicking, knowing where we're going to be, that we're in San Francisco and that we're there. But the grace of God, the power of God, unto salvation, we believe is the power of God unto church planning as well. The gospel will change that city. And we believe that. And the gospel is changing that city with the other churches that are there preaching the gospel. Now, this is why I believe it takes a whole church to birth a new church. It takes everyone. For us who have moved to San Francisco, we have all these wonderful resources available to us because of you, by God's grace. We have prayer and sound doctrine and financial help and relational and physical. I know if we're in a pinch and I call up someone on staff, he will send somebody sitting in this room or in Ventura down that night to help us on Sunday. I know that would happen. Like, we're in a pinch, we need this, and you guys would make it happen. I know that we have that sort of support from you guys, and you guys would be glad to do it. So we feel so supported by you and your generosity. But but equally, for you, the church here, starting a church keeps you vigilant. It keeps you missional. Me and Britt talked about this a lot. We never, and all the other church planners, we never, ever, ever want to stop planning churches. Ever want to stop planning churches. Through starting San Francisco, we like refined what we believe about the urban church. We have fallen in love with cities like all over again. And we, we can't wait. To, we really want to start more churches in cities. We really have a heart for that. And we all had to pray and think, mostly pray about what reality looks like in San Francisco. So this is important. What it looks like in SF. What does reality look like in that city? How do we keep the DNA of reality, but not simply be a clone in the city? And so we had to think through this. I mean, we want, we want to be faithful to the gospel in the context of that city. How do we do that? And we wrestled through that, and we prayed through that, and we thought through that, and we came up with the best way to do this is to start a prayer tour. We need to get people from this church, from Ventura, from Santa Barbara, from here, and LA, and Stockton, into the city and seek God. God, what do you want us to be in this city? How do you want us to act and react in this city? What is it you want us to do? What needs does this this city have in particular that you want us to meet? What idols do we need to confront with the gospel in this city? What demonic strongholds need to be fought in this city? And we did that, and God has shaped and molded us to, to really change us to go, this is, this is how we're going to do ministry in this context, in the city. Being true to the gospel, being true to the DNA of who we are. We know who we are, but contextualizing that to San Francisco. And that's what's been so beautiful. And we all had to wrestle through this. And those of you that have come out to pray, you guys have done the same thing. It's amazing to me, those people that came on the first couple of prayer tours, by the way, they've all been sold out. We sold out this one, but we opened up some more spots. But if you can't go, you guys could show up on Saturday night, stay at a hotel, and go to the first service. You're more than welcome to do that. It'd be awesome to see you guys there at our launch uh, in, in two weeks. But what's been awesome about this is that people, I remember signing up for the prayer tour going, I'm so afraid of San Francisco. I'm so afraid of that city. I don't, I don't it's just so dark and 
congested and I'm scared of it. And then they go and they fall in love with that city. And they see God's grace in that city. And they, they see Jesus in that city. And it's been awesome that you guys genuinely have a, a, a love and a heart for that, for that city. Now, on a personal note, personally, what this whole process has done in me and in my, in my wife, what this has done in us, the most important lesson that we have learned over the last uh, couple of years has been this, this thing that I think every single person who's ever done or attempted to do anything for the glory of God has gone through, this death to self. About a year and a half ago, the staff and the wives, staff wives were at Britt's parents' house for dinner, and we were getting to know this potential church planner, potential church planner who whenever there's someone that's interested in planning a church, the staff really wants to, again, that community, that relationship, invite them in, get to know them. And, and so we were there and we were hearing from the church planner, okay, why do you feel God's calling you here and all this stuff and what is God doing? Tell me your story. Tell us your story. And then after he was done, Britt turns to me. I had no idea he was going to do this. He turns to me and he goes, Dave, you've been here for about nine months. At that time, I'd been there for about nine months. You've been here for about nine months. Why don't you share your story, what you've been through? Now, in the course of nine months, I had sold my house, uprooted my wife and I from Bakersfield, cashed in my retirement. I I did have a little retirement. Cashed it in to live here, because if you know, it's expensive to live here. I got a job at a bank, which is not like me at all. I got fired from the bank (laughs) because I can't count money. Well, I can count just not above 100, and that was really a problem. <laughs> I, then I took a job at Starbucks where I worked in the morning, and then after that went, I was a, a narc at Carp High or security guard, whatever. So I was 30, working part-time at Starbucks. One of my bosses was 19 years old, I think. I just got fired from the bank eight days before Christmas. I was doing anything I was doing nine months before being in full-time ministry. And all these things flashed through my mind when Britt said, Dave, tell, tell this man about the process or tell this man what you're going through. And so I'd, all these things flashed through my mind and I just get this like scowl, this like, this look. And I looked at him, I go, death. <laughs> and, and, the, and the staff kind of got this nervous laugh like, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> and, and then I realized, oh my gosh, I might have offended somebody. I'm like, I mean, uh, God, I love God and God's good. And but that's what I was really going through. I felt like this total death was, and I wasn't trying to be dramatic, though I often do that for effect, but I was being very, very honest. I felt like I was dying. I felt like everything I thought life was and ministry was and happiness was, was dying. And one of the most beautiful verses that came to my mind that has been in, in the in the front of my mind for this whole time was what Jesus said in John chapter 12. He says in verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. You see, inside a grain of wheat is everything that is necessary for life and fruitfulness. Inside a grain of wheat. You hold that grain of wheat in your hand, everything in there is in there potentially for life and fruitfulness. But if you try and preserve that grain, if you try to protect it by keeping it in an airtight jar or, or in your pocket, preserved in safety and security, it remains alone. It remains ineffective. It remains unfruitful. 
But when you bury it into the cold ground, a process of decay and death occurs to that grain, and then something marvelous happens. Through that death, life emerges, and a fruitful crop of grain is born. This was the hardest part of the process for me. This like being this little grain of wheat that was like buried in the cold ground of obscurity was really, really hard for me. But through that, like life came from it. I look back, they call it detox, I call it death, whatever. But life came. It's a kingdom principle. You see, if it's true of Jesus, it's true of Jesus' followers. If he had to fall to the ground and die, it's true of us as well. Now, in the process of this death, there comes this intimacy. I've had more intimacy with Jesus, more intimacy with my wife and with the church than I've ever had before because through obscurity and that death comes intimacy, but also comes this solidarity with Jesus. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, you have to read this book if you've not read it, he closes the book like this. This principle runs through all life from top to bottom. Give up yourself and you will find your, your real self. Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death, death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day and death of your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you have not given away will really be yours. Nothing in you that has not died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look to Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. You see, I think starting churches is one way we all get to die together. Keeping nothing back not money, not people, not relationships, not our time. And through this, we get to see new life. I cannot wait to see new life in San Francisco. I cannot wait to see new life there. But this is, if this is true of church planting, this is true, how much more is it true of your marriage? How much more is it true of your life? How much more is it true of your job? I would impress upon you this morning, what is it in your marriage what is it in your life personally? What is it in your private life or your public life or your devotional life that needs to die? What is it that needs to die that there would be new life that comes from it? You see, look for Christ and you will find him and with him everything else thrown in. Die to yourself as we die, as God is, has me in that process even today. And he has so many of you in that same process. Die to yourself and you get Christ, and with him, everything else. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you, God, that... Thank you for this church, Lord. I pray that you would bless this church. I ask God this church would continue to die and to plant churches. I pray this church would continue to... Every marriage would submit under your lordship. Every life would submit under your lordship, that this church would be blessed, that you would give tenfold what they've given. Bless this church, God, I pray. And I pray, Lord, for those personally out there that there's parts of their life that needs to die. You might be taken through that grinding process right now where you're, you're calling them, lay that down, bury that ambition, bury that thing, bury it, that new life would come. I pray they would do that, Lord. I pray that they would spend some time dealing with that with you right now. Thank you, Lord, that if we take up our cross and follow you, Lord, 
will never, ever, ever regret it. Though it's a death, though it's painful, beauty comes from it. Thank you for these truths, these principles, Lord. We pray you'd make them real and apply them to our hearts now. The prayer team is to your right and to your left. Let's spend some time and, and do some real heart work with God. What parts of our life need to die? What parts of our life need new life?